Our reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 7. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be with the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Heavenly Father, enlighten us because of your word. Help us live with one another in such a way that merely by our behavior, others take notice as unto Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I asked Joe to go ahead and read all of that, uh, verses 1 through 7, but I can tell you that in the process of going working through this, I, I determined to uh, take verse 7 directed to husbands and do that as a separate message. I heard a couple of other messages that did it that way, and um, there's a lot in verse 7. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 6. Do you, do you guys ever think about the questions that God poses to us in the Bible? Joshua asked Israel on God's behalf, Whom will you serve? God directly asked Job, Where were you when I made all this? Jesus asks His disciples, Who do you say that I am? When God asks us questions, they're really good questions. And the answers to those questions can, can be the difference between life and death. But here are a couple of questions that God will never ask us. Does my way of doing things make sense? Does my way of doing things work? God's never going to ask you those questions for one very simple reason. Like every other created being, you're not even remotely qualified to answer them. Even if you were Adam in the garden before the fall, without sin, you would still not be qualified to answer them. And yet many, many professing Christians think and live as if God is perfectly willing to let us order our lives based on our own answers to those two questions. Does God's way of doing things make sense? Does God's way of doing things actually work? 
Perhaps the most defining reality of all for us as human beings is that the starting point, the starting point for knowing what makes sense, for knowing what's good, what's true, what's right, what's reasonable, what's wise rather than foolish, the starting point, the end point, and every point in between for knowing what makes sense is for us to humble ourselves before God and confess that we don't know unless He tells us. And the same is true when it comes to knowing what works. We don't know unless He tells us. The most dangerous kind of Christian is a pragmatic Christian. That means a Christian who adjusts his or her beliefs and behavior based on what works. The reason pragmatism is so inherently dangerous is that you and I are lousy at recognizing the difference between a good result and a bad result. We are terrible judges of what works. That probably has something to do with God's assessment of our hearts before He entered the picture in our lives. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Doesn't that give you warm fuzzies? Let me ask you this. Would you let a professional con artist give you advice on how to get a good return on your financial investments? I wouldn't either. But guess what? The con artist who knows you best and who deceives you most skillfully is the one you used to be before God redeemed you. In case you weren't aware of this, you are still doing battle daily to push away the lies that your own expertly deceptive heart has told you and to replace those lies with the truth of God. Every day. And you know what that makes you? It makes you a really poor judge of what works. If you go on Amazon, you search for books claiming to be Christian that offer counsel on how to handle various life events and relationships, you'll find that a very large number of those books focus on what works. Christian wives, do these five things and you'll rekindle your husband's affection and you'll rescue your marriage from the ash heap. Set these four critical boundaries in your relationship with your husband and then stick to your guns and your husband will finally realize that you're not a rug for him to wipe his feet on. Your marriage will be so much better. But what if God's measure of success for a Christian wife had nothing to do with how affectionately her husband treats her? What if God cares far more about His daughter's Christ-like response to suffering than He does about keeping her from suffering at the hands of a mean-spirited husband? What if God knows that the outcome of her godly behavior will be that her husband decides to divorce her and find a woman who's less obsessed with Christ and more obsessed with Him. Would that mean that she goofed 
when she resolved to do things God's way? Absolutely not. We do not recognize the difference between a desirable result and an undesirable result unless God tells us which is which. And sometimes, actually, very often, He doesn't tell us in specific terms what result He intends to bring about through our obedience. He prefers that we walk by faith and not by sight. And that means He often withholds sight. What you and I need to know is that the outcome of our obedience to God's way of doing things is entirely in His hands, not ours. And that works out really great because He is perfectly trustworthy and we are not trustworthy at all. God has no interest in our assessment of either the sensibility or the results of following Christ. He calls us to follow Christ. That's what this passage is about. Peter's instructions in verses 1-6 through are directed specifically to married Christian women. But he's addressing one particular context here. One realm of application for a big picture principle that he started laying out in the middle of the previous chapter. And that principle applies to all believers. Chapter 3, verse 1 begins with these words, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. If you look back at chapter 2, you'll see what those words in the same way are referring to. Peter says, in effect, wives, submit to your own husbands as all of us are to submit to earthly authorities. Submit to your own husbands as slaves are to submit to their masters, even really bad ones. But most foundationally, wives, Submit to your husbands as Christ submitted to His Father. This passage is a continuation of the broader call to all Christians to submit to God-ordained authority in every context of life. And if you look at Romans chapter 13, the first two verses, you'll find that every authority that exists over you is a God-ordained authority, even if they're bad ones. As aliens and strangers in a world that is populated mostly by people who are still dead in their sins, we will often find ourselves required by God to submit to godless people. And that means our submission will often be accompanied by suffering. Peter doesn't dodge the issue of that suffering. He doesn't whitewash any of this. He doesn't say that when we obey God by submitting to those in authority over us, God will keep us from having to suffer for doing so. Quite the opposite. He puts the matter of unjust suffering front and center. He commands us to quietly and patiently endure that unjust suffering and to do so entirely for Christ's sake. That's the big theme here. But... There's an even bigger theme at work here that we need to have clearly in mind if we're going to understand God's purpose in these instructions in chapter 3. 
Everything Peter says, all the way from 1 Peter 2.13 to the end of, the, of this letter, falls under his command to every believer in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If you've got your Bible, open it up. Look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Everything in the letter after verse 12 is founded on those two verses. The command in those verses is that we are to live excellently as God's ambassadors in this very strange land (laughs) so that our lives will be useful to God to save lost people. So that those who slander us now will glorify God in the day of visitation. So that we will populate His kingdom with people whom He plucks out of darkness and puts in His marvelous light just like He did with us. And He'll do that through us. As the redeemed people of God who have been graciously called out of darkness into His marvelous light, we are to keep our behavior excellent among all the lost people that surround us so that He may use us to draw others to faith. That's why we're still here. That's why we're still here. Now we read that top-level exhortation, verses 11 and 12, and we say, okay, God, what does that look like? How do we actually go about living in a way that is useful to you to save lost people? His clear answer to us is that one of the most powerfully useful things that we do to keep our behavior excellent is when we willingly submit to every authority He has placed over us, even when those authorities are not believers and even when they abuse their authority. When our willing submission for Christ's sake puts us in harm's way, when someone in authority over us treats us unjustly or even abusively, the excellent behavior to which God calls us is quiet, patient endurance in the face of that suffering, always entrusting our well-being to the God who judges justly. And our perfect example for every bit of what God tells us to do here is Jesus Christ. That's where chapter 2 ended in verses tw- chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. It was all about Christ. Peter focused our attention like a laser beam on the one who perfectly demonstrated all of this. So God calls every believer to faithfully, quietly, patiently submit to those in authority over us, not to please men, but to honor Christ and to copy Christ, to follow Christ, even when that means we suffer for doing so. At the beginning of chapter 3, Peter applies that big principle to the context of marriage. First, he addresses Christian wives, and then he addresses Christian husbands, and then he addresses all of us. God's command through Peter to every Christian wife is be submissive to your own husband. Be subject to your own husband. By the way, your own husband is emphatic. That means you're not supposed to have to submit to the other guy's husband, the other girl's husband, or other women's husband. It's your husband. In verse 1, Peter says that his instructions to believing wives here apply even if 
the woman's husband is disobedient to the Word. Now, what does that mean? I've heard all kinds of declarations about what that means. All you have to do to know what that means is look at Peter's use of the exact same phrase earlier in this book. In chapter 2, verse 8, he's referring there to the Jewish leaders who rejected God's cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Rejected Him to the point of pressing for His crucifixion. See, disobedient to the Word means unbelieving. It means lost. Dead in sin. Now think for a moment about Peter's original audience. This was the mid-60s A.D. Not the 1960s. Music was good then, but I don't know about the 60s. Many of the churches to whom Peter was writing were very young, fledgling churches. Think about this. Within virtually every marriage that already existed at the time the Gospel was first preached in these cities in Asia Minor, the first person in any married couple to come to faith had an unbelieving spouse. At least for a while. There can be little doubt that in a great many of those marriages, it was a long, painful wait for that believing spouse before God brought the other one to faith. And in many cases, it didn't happen at all. So, many marriages in the early church had one believing spouse and one unbelieving spouse at least for a while, right? While God commands every Christian wife to submit to her husband as to the Lord, Peter focuses here on the believing wife who's married to an unbelieving husband. He tells her God may use her godly submission to draw her husband to faith in Christ. Now we rightly say that it's not in our power to win a lost person to Christ. None of us can save a lost soul. That's God's work, not ours. We rightly say that a wife with an unbelieving husband must not take it upon herself to somehow convince her husband to trust in Jesus Christ. Because if she tries to do that, if she takes it upon herself, she's going to really make a mess of things. But we must not miss the purpose clause in 1 Peter 3.1. So that even if any husbands are disobedient to the Word, they may be won without a word by the, chaste and res- by the behavior of their wives. The chaste and, next verse, chaste and respectful behavior. Now there's no guarantee here that the unbelieving husband will come to faith no matter how the wife behaves toward him. Peter doesn't say he will be one. It says he may be one. But the pursuit of the husband's salvation is explicitly presented as part of the wife's purpose for living with her husband on God's terms. She is to live with her unbelieving husband in quiet submission in order that her husband might be one to Christ without a word through her godly behavior. Peter's talking about far more here than the wife's earnest desire for the salvation of her husband. He's talking about far more than the wife's diligent prayers for the salvation of her husband. He is calling the wife here to action. 
He is calling her to act in a manner that is purposed to point her husband to Christ. Now that really shouldn't be a surprise to us. As we've already seen, that's the big picture overriding theme of everything Peter says in this epistle after the exhortation in verses, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 for us to keep our behavior excellent so that God will use us to save people. The foundational reason God's left you and me on this earth after plucking us out of the darkness is that we are His to be His agents and image bearers so He can bring other people out of the darkness. Okay. That evangelistic, kingdom-expanding purpose pervades and controls all that we do in all of our relationships, even in our relationships with Christians, right? It controls how we love and serve the body of Christ, how we do our daily work, how we handle illness and tribulation, and how we treat our spouses. So a Christian wife married to an unbelieving husband is supposed to actively pursue the salvation of her husband. <laughs> but it's the how that's the kicker. How she goes about that pursuit must be entirely on God's terms, not on her terms. That's really important because unless the wife prayerfully resolves to approach this pursuit of her husband's salvation God's way, she will most certainly do it wrongly. She'll be sticking post-it note Bible verses on his bathroom mirror. She'll be accidentally leaving her latest book on Christian marriage on the table by his recliner with strategic bookmarks. She'll be talking incessantly about how all her believing friends' kids are so respectful and well-behaved. That's not the approach to seeking her husband's salvation that Peter is talking about. What Peter is saying here is counterintuitive. It does not fit with our habits of thinking and acting. Just as with what he said to all believers about submitting to godless government authorities, and just like what he said to all believers, or to servants, about submitting to godless, even abusive masters, what he says here to wives regarding submitting to unbelieving husbands is not intuitively the way we would be prone to do this. Let's face it. <laughs> if God left it up to us to come up with our own strategy for dealing with godless people and godless institutions, this wouldn't be it. The natural inclination of, a, of the woman in this situation is to fix her husband. Her way. And what does her way look like? Well, allowing for differences in personality, the reality is, ever since the fall, the sinful inclination of wives is to dominate their husbands to ensure that they get what they are convinced they need. And ever since the fall, the sinful inclination of husbands, not just picking on wives here, ever since the fall, the sinful inclination of husbands is to rule as tyrants over their wives to ensure that the husband gets what he is convinced he needs. 
That's the meaning of Genesis 3.16. And if you don't believe that when you read Genesis 3.16, send me an email and I'll send you bulletproof evidence from Scripture that that's what Genesis 3.16 says. That's what it means. And here's where the difference between men and women living under the curse ties into Peter's instructions to wives. Men tend to be tyrants in their marriages, and with most things that characterize men, tyranny isn't subtle. When a husband doesn't get what he wants from his wife, his methods for extracting it tend to be heavy-handed, and they can easily become abusive. But when a wife doesn't get what she wants from her husband, her methods for extracting what she wants tend to be much more subtle and much less direct. If you take God's revolutionary way of living out of the picture for just a moment, you stand back as an objective observer of how things work when men and women do things the world's way, what would you say is the wife's most powerful point of leverage to get what she wants from her husband? It's not food. It's sex. Now surely that's not really a hard question, right? If it's easy for us to figure out, you can be sure God is way ahead of us. And that explains why Peter goes where he goes next in this passage. Immediately after instructing believing wives to submit even to unbelieving husband, what does Peter talk about? He talks about the dramatic difference between a wife who adorns her body and a wife who adorns her heart. Consider this scenario. A middle-aged woman comes to faith in Christ. Her affection and devotion toward Jesus begin to radically redefine how she thinks and how she lives. Very soon, the thing that she begins to pray for most is the salvation of her husband. Because she deeply desires to share with him the one who has become most beautiful to her. But her husband isn't having any of it. He leaves the room anytime she tries to talk about Jesus. But her faith in Jesus isn't just an annoyance to him. He actually begins to resent it. He resents the fact that he is no longer the focus of all her attention and all of her affection the way he used to be. <laughs> He's jealous against Jesus Christ. She begins to feel desperate to restore some level of normalcy and peace in her marriage. If she can't convince her husband to trust in Jesus, maybe she can at least win back his affection for her and hopefully put an end to his angry and occasionally abusive treatment of her. So she reverts to that old, reliably powerful point of leverage that women have over men. Sexuality. She gets a gym membership with the goal of getting back to her wedding day figure. She studies up on all the newest, best-reviewed products and methods for enhancing her physical beauty. She is determined to make herself 
so attractive to her husband that he wouldn't even think of mistreating her. Four months later and 20 pounds lighter, she finds that her husband's sexual interest in her is indeed better than it's been since their honeymoon. But his interest in Jesus Christ is as non-existent as ever. And far worse, she's been so obsessed with winning back her husband's affection for her that her affection for Christ has seriously waned over the last few months. She never misses a gym workout. That's a habit. But she can't seem to find time to sit at the feet of Jesus and to listen to Him and to behold Him. She's gotten locked into the wrong course of action because she's been pursuing the wrong goal. See, her assignment before God was never to win her husband's affection for her. Her assignment before God is to show her husband the incomparable worthiness of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, Let not your adornment be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Brothers and sisters, if we cut to the chase, the wife's God-given assignment is not to show off her beauty at all. Her assignment is to get out of the way so her husband will see Christ in her. That's real beauty. That's imperishable beauty. And if anyone, any woman in Peter's audience wanted a perfect, crystal clear example about how to display, display real beauty, all he had to do, all she had to do, excuse me, was refer back to the verses that came just before these. Chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. It wasn't the physical beauty of Jesus Christ that brought about our eternal salvation. I know that because God actually comes right out and says it. In Isaiah 53, the passage to which Peter refers six times in five, in the five verses at the end of 1 Peter 2. In Isaiah 53, God declares that Christ's physical appearance would be marred more than any man. It was written 700 years before Christ came. It says he was so beat up and disfigured that he became like one from whom men hide their face. Jesus accomplished perfect victory over sin and over the curse of sin by the most counterintuitive, world-defying means imaginable. He humbled himself, denied himself, submitted himself to the will of his Father, and suffered silently to the point of execution on a cross so that... 1 Peter 2.24, we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds we are healed. That's what God calls beautiful. 
Jesus became frighteningly ugly on the outside to accomplish that. (laughs) Is that what God's calling Christian wives to do? Become frighteningly ugly for Christ? No. No. He's calling Christian wives to major in adorning real beauty. Dear sisters, God has not called you to adorn your beauty. He has called you to adorn His beauty in you. It would be so easy to get bogged down in a discussion about what kinds of physical adornments and makeup and jewelry and that are, are okay for Christian women. But that's not the point of Peter's instruction here. The letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And the Spirit of the instruction here, to which the Holy Spirit would have us pay very close attention, is that God calls His daughters to adorn His beauty, not theirs. Wives, your assignment is to draw attention not to you, but to Him who is in you. And young women... Girls, the best time to start learning how to do that is before you're married. In his message on this same passage, John MacArthur points out that Peter is not instructing wives here to act more womanly. He's not saying that humble, quiet submission is more ladylike. (laughs) He's pointing out that humble, quiet submission, even in the face of suffering, is Christ-like. He's calling wives to act in the same way as Christ. That's verse 1. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. Learn from Me. For I am gentle. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. If you look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, which lay out for us the character of Christ to which we are called, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, the gentle, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, God, God, the God-designed purpose of adornment in the first place, God's purpose for adornment isn't to create beauty is to show off beauty. That that little principle all by itself would revolutionize the way women and lately men handle the vanity of physical beauty. Adornment isn't supposed to create beauty. It's supposed to show off beauty. Read Titus 2. It'll make that very clear. The critical question is, what beauty are you showing off? Much more to the point, whose beauty are you showing off? In 1 Peter 3, verse 5, Peter directly ties his instructions about the wife's adornment right back to what he said in verses 1 and 2 about the wife's submission to her husband. (laughs) He tells us that that submission is the adornment. The submission is the adornment of the inner beauty. He says... 
In this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Submission to your husband is the adornment of the inner beauty in the heart. Okay. The way, wives, the way you show off the hidden person of the heart is by being submissive to your husband even when he's impossible to live with. Especially when he's impossible to live with. You patiently, quietly persevere in submitting to your husband even when it looks to you like he's putting your well-being grievously at risk. And in doing so, you show Christ to your husband much more vividly than your words could ever accomplish. What your husband does with that display of Christ is between God and him. But his response or his lack of response doesn't change your assignment even for a minute. Your assignment is to adorn the beauty of Christ in you. And to do so without any fear. The second half of verse 6 is the key to this whole thing. It's the most revolutionary piece of this passage. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And here's the kicker. You have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. That's a tall order, right? Without being frightened by any fear. Now, if you don't think Abraham ever gave Sarah a reason to fear for her well-being, you need to go back and read Genesis 12 through 22. I won't give you the details, but go home and check that out. Abraham did not have a natural inclination toward good judgment. 1 Peter 3.6 is the key to godly submission. Not just submission of Christian wives to unbelieving husbands, but of Christian wives to believing husbands whose judgment is corrupted by their ongoing struggle against sin. It's the key to godly submission for church members who are called by God to submit to elders whose judgment is corrupted by that very same ongoing struggle. This simple revolutionary principle applies to every believer in every relationship that involves headship and submission. We are called to submit to those in authority over us, not to please those people who are in authority, but to honor Jesus Christ. When we suffer for doing so, we assess that suffering much, much differently than an unbeliever would assess it. See, we have no cause to fear the temporary suffering of this life. Period. Why? Because we're not looking around. We're looking forward and upward. Our living hope is not about what we get to lay hold of here and now. The hope that drives and controls and sustains us is untouched by the sufferings of this present time. It is not worthy to be compared with the sufferings of this present. These sufferings aren't worthy to be compared with that glory. 
The momentary light affliction that we experience here, even when it doesn't feel light, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You cannot compare the two. It's like taking a drop of water out of the ocean and thinking it's going to tell you everything you need to know about what's in the ocean. A Christian wife may say, how can I not be afraid of the terrible pain my husband inflicts on me emotionally and threatens me with physically when he's drunk and treats me like his worst enemy. One dear sister in this body sent me an email and gave me permission to use the story. Her husband's an alcoholic. He used to send her daily to go buy wine for him to, to take care of his addiction. And she would, she would make the case with him how this was destroying him. It was killing his liver. It was, it was driving him to an early death. And it was really making him impossible to live with. And she looked at 1 Peter chapter 3 and she resolved that when her husband told her to go buy him wine, she would go buy it. And she would do so without fear, without anxiety. She would trust God And she would recognize that her assignment was not to fix her husband. After about three weeks, her husband came to her one morning and said, I'm not going to drink anymore. And he was cured of alcoholism without AA, without intervention. Now that's a powerful example of how God may use the wife's submission. It's not a guarantee. She actually, in the email, told me about another friend who attempted to, to persist in submitting to her husband and her husband just... It ended in a, in a divorce. Another wife may say, how can I not be afraid of what I know will happen if I just sit back and accept my husband's ridiculous financial decisions that are moving us straight toward bankruptcy. I've known couples that have, where one person in the couple had to deal with that threat, and it's scary. It feels like the answer to those questions is elusive. It feels like you're in an impossible, unbearable situation. But if you are in a situation like that, beloved, God's answer for you is amazingly simple and straightforward. Our problem with it is not that it's unclear. It's that we don't like it. Here's God's answer. You have no cause to fear someone who cannot separate you from the love of Christ. And if you want to know what can separate you from the love of Christ, go read Romans 8, verses 31 to 38. The answer is nothing. Anyone who cannot separate you from the love of Christ, the shepherd and guardian of your soul, is not worthy of your fear. Any situation that such a person can impose on you is not worthy of your fear. You have no cause to fear someone who cannot touch your living hope in Jesus Christ. 
how it must grieve God to hear so-called Bible teachers and so-called Christian counselors telling wives and husbands how to set the right boundaries in their marriages so they will be protected from the serious harm that their spouse might impose on them. They're teaching, Christian Christian teachers are teaching the flock to fear that which is not worthy of fear. God planned before you even existed to send His one and only Son to be humiliated, to suffer horribly, to be publicly executed to give you life. If Jesus ever for even a millisecond decided that He was going to set the right boundaries so He could limit what He had to suffer for you, you would be everlasting toast. And so would I. My dear grandmother trusted Jesus as her Savior when she was eight years old and she lived until she was 93 years old. Funny to the end, by the way. Her first husband abused her in every way conceivable. Not only did she remain married to him until the day he died of tuberculosis, she faithfully loved him and served him and forgave him and submitted to him because she knew that was God's gracious assignment for her as a daughter of the living God. That was his powerfully useful calling for her. Do you know what the world today would call my grandmother? A fool of the highest order. You know what I call my grandmother? A hero of the faith. I am not saying that God required her to stay in a house with a physically abusive husband. What I'm saying is her reason for doing so was not foolish. It was not passive. It was not weak. It was beautiful. And it was worthy of emulation. Not mockery. My mom also got saved when she was eight years old. She was a strikingly beautiful woman on the outside. But the beauty that she worked hardest to display was the beauty of Christ in her. She was as virtuous as any woman I've known or known about. Mom always said that she loved my dad's hands because they only ever touched her in love. And she grew up seeing what happened when that was not the case. Dad was never abusive, not even remotely, but in many ways he was really hard to live with. Sometimes he was downright impossible to live with. But my mom loved him and served him and forgave him and submitted to him. Not perfectly, but very, very tenaciously, just as she had seen her mother do before her. And in my mom's case, God fulfilled the, the may happen clause in First Peter 3. God brought my dad to faith in Jesus Christ in the last 18 months of his life when he was dying from cancer. He saw fit to use me at some level 
in drawing my dad to Christ, but I have no doubt whatsoever that my mom was his primary instrument and that he had been showing Christ to my dad through her for a very, very long time. The last words that my dad uttered before going into the presence of his Savior were three short sentences. He had been in a coma for nearly 24 hours, but at one point my mom came in to check on him. He was in a hospice bed right at the end of her bed. He opened his eyes, he raised his head, and he said to her, Honey, I want you to know two things. I love the Lord, and I love you. And then he slipped back into the coma, and that was the last of his words. I believe there was a supernaturally powerful connection between those two loves. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Beloved, that makes sense. That works the way God wants it to work. Do that. Dear Father, these are piercing, they, uh, revolutionary words as so many of the things that you've been showing us in First Peter. Father, don't let us water this down. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.